You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. My name is Tara, and I will be reading Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 to 23. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. He was a prominent man of noble character from Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. Ruth the Moabites asked Naomi, Will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone with whom I find favor? Naomi answered her, Go ahead, my daughter. So Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. She happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. Later, when Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he said to the harvesters, The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they replied. Boaz asked his servant, who was in charge of the harvesters, Whose young woman is this? The servant answered, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the territory of Moab. She asked, Will you let me gather fallen grain among the bundles behind the harvesters? She came and has been on her feet since early morning except that she rested a little in the shelter. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another field, and don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they are harvesting, and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. She fell face down, bowed to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor with you, so that you notice me, although I am a foreigner? Boaz answered her, Everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and mother in your native land, and how you came to a people you didn't previously know. May the Lord reward you for what you have done, And may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. My Lord, she said, I have found favor with you, for you have comforted and encouraged your servant, although I am not like one of your female servants. At mealtime, Boaz told her, come over here and have some bread and dip it in the vinegar sauce. So she sat beside the harvesters, and he offered her roasted grain. She ate and was satisfied and had some left over. When she got up to gather grain, Boaz ordered his young men, let her even gather grain among the bundles and don't humiliate her. Pull out some stalks from the bundles for her and leave them for her to gather. Don't rebuke her. So Ruth gathered grain in the field until evening. She beat out what she had gathered and it was about 26 quarts of barley. She picked up the grain and went into the town, where her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She brought out what she had left over from her meal and gave it to her. Her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you gather barley today, and where did you work? May the Lord bless the man who noticed you. Ruth told her mother-in-law whom she had worked with and said, The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May the Lord bless him, because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. Naomi continued, The man is a close relative. 
He is one of our family redeemers. Ruth the Moabitess said, He also told me, Stay with my young men until they have finished all of my harvest. So Naomi said to her daughter-in-law Ruth, My daughter, it is good for you to work with his female servants, so that nothing will happen to you in another field. Ruth stayed close to Boaz's female servants and gathered grain until the barley and the wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Hi everyone, my name is Betty. I'm a partner of the Village Church. Today I would like to share my story as my as uh, in my journey of finding a job in the U.S. As an international student, I'm supposed to find a job during the grace period of my optical training. Uh, well, it is a 90-day uh, grace period, so I have to find a job before at the end of uh, November. Um, as as I although I'm looking for a job for a long time, there's still no um, that still no offer that is that matches my program. Um, I in one in a in a day uh, as in my prayer, I I began to realize that although I'm I'm uh, although I'm earnestly looking for a job outside deep in deep inside, I'm still not expecting a work because I feel like God is showing me that um, that my heart towards work is still in the is still the system of the world full of competition and full of um, striving uh, and I really feel weary and feel tired about that so that's why I'm not expecting a work except for the motivation of money. And I feel like on that day, God began uh, to show me His salvation in my work and how He, uh, how he can restore the whole, the, my working status, how He can restore me um, and as my attitude towards my work. Because I'm, uh, in my mindset, I'm still think that I'm a slave, that I have to, uh, I have to, um, to make breaks and I have to, um, under the oppression of the, of, of the system of, in the world. But God is showing me that, no, um, he, um, uh, Jesus Christ has has saved me from the from the world and transformed me to his kingdom and now I'm no longer under the I'm no longer under the old system that I have to uh, striving and uh, competition um, so that I can I can feel better um, to be better than others and that's tearing and that's hard uh, and God is showing me that how he can use my work to um, to know better about him and also use my work to build a dynamic and beautiful relationship with people around me and how I can um, there's a lot of interesting things in the work um, so I began to I began to uh, use a new eyes to see uh, the things that surround me. Um, at the at the thanks just before the week of the Thanksgiving, there's no there's no official offer. Um, on that Saturday morning, I called my parents and I told them that 
there's one week left. There's no time. Uh, what should I do? There's, it seems that there's no hope. And my mom began to encourage me that uh, God is always on time, and uh, He can He can do anything. He's God, and just l- let's pray and see what He can do. Um, and after that prayer, around 10:30, um, a professor connected me about a potential work opportunity. It was amazing. Like uh, it is not a weekend day. It 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 is a Saturday, and just after our prayer, and uh, um, he sent me an email. Um, and it's interesting that she, um, originally um, she told me that there there was no opportunity in our lab because uh, we we are not planning to hire someone, um, but. Uh, that Saturday morning, she told me that, "Well, uh, there's an opportunity for you to work here. You can help with us uh, with our database. It can be both helpful for us." Um, so we began to schedule a meeting and discuss what are the ways that uh, that I can um, function in his in her lab, and uh, it's. And she agreed, and she agreed to sponsor my uh, immigrant status and to work in the U.S. And it was really happened in one day um, before my mom woke up from sleep. And it's really according to his word that God gave me a job in one day. Um, so I'm I'm super appreciate how he has done in in my life, and he does not just give me a job. It's not only about a job; it's about transform my life so that I know better about him and also um, have a give me a new eyes.、Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you, thank you, Kara, for reading. Thank you, Betty, for sharing your story, and that's just such an encouragement to me personally. I remember talking to her actually on the phone. Uh, a few weeks before Thanksgiving, she was asking for prayer as well,、uh, just because if she didn't get a job、uh, by the end of that 90-day period, she would have to go back to China, and she wanted to stay. And so she was able to get a job, and I hope that's encouragement to you as well.、Um, uh, today we're going through Ruth two, which has a lot of similarities with Betty's story. Just like Betty, Ruth is a foreigner, and just like Betty, Ruth is looking for a job. And just like it was with Betty, God provided. So、um, let's go through the text a little bit to better understand the story. We're just going to run through, and then we'll talk about it. So let's read verse one. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side. He was a prominent man of noble character from Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. So now this is the first time we run into this dude named Boaz, and、uh, he, we don't know a whole lot about him. But the text makes it clear he's a pretty upstanding guy. He's a relative of Elimelech, who, if you recall, was、um, Naomi's husband, and、uh, he's wealthy. He's a man of good character. Later, we learn he's a, a landowner with a lot of employees, and so he's、uh, he has a lot of power in this world. Let's keep going. Verse two: Ruth the Moabitess. Often in this in this whole book, Ruth is referred to as Ruth the Moabitess. Um, asked Naomi, "Will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain behind someone with whom I find favor?" Naomi answered her, "Go ahead, my daughter." So、uh, let's talk a little about this gathering fallen grain business. So back in those days, agriculture was a big business. That was one of the main things people did. 
And uh, there were usually three tiers of people who worked in this business, okay? So you have what you might call the landowner, that's Boaz. The landowner is the guy who's at the top of the food chain, and he hires people to work on his field. And secondly, there are the landowner's employees, which in this uh, book, they refer to as Boaz's servants. He has male servants and female servants, and typically what goes on in this, in this day, uh, during this time period is the male servants, they would cut the grain, and then the female servants would follow, and they would gather the grain. All right, so the fact that he has a lot of employees shows that he, has, he doesn't just have a small plot of land. He has a lot of land because he has to hire people to gather grain for him. And then, uh, thirdly, there are the poor people who can't even get employment. And so what they do is they scavenge for food. And during that time, the Mosaic Law had actually decreed that for the sake of these poor people, when you are gathering grain for yourself, if you own land and you're gathering grain for yourself or you're hiring people to gather grain for yourself, you need to intentionally not gather all the grain, but just leave a little bit of grain so that the poor can come alongside you. After you've done gathering your own grain, the poor can gather grain for themselves. All right. And so in this story, that's Ruth. Um, In fact, there's a lot of verses in the Bible that talk about this whole making sure the poor have grain to gather. I'm just going to read Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 22. It says, When you reap the harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, do not go back and get it. It is to be left for the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you knock down the fruit from your olive tree, do not go over the branches again. What remains will be for the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, do not glean what is left. What remains will be for the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I'm commanding you to do this. So, uh, in other words, when you are gathering things for yourself, be intentionally sloppy. Don't gather at all. Leave some behind so that the poor people, in particular... The resident alien or the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow, which sort of describe the most marginalized people in the community of that time, so that these people could also get food as well. Um, In other words, serve the underprivileged of your society. Um, And all three of these categories sort of describe Ruth, right? Ruth is a foreigner. She's not necessarily fatherless, but her parents live in another country, and so she's without her parents. And as a single woman, that's, you know, that's functionally fatherless. And she's also a widow. Her husband had passed away. And so we don't know, if, we don't know how Ruth knew about this law. Maybe Naomi told, me, told her about this law, but we knew that she understood in, in Hebrew society, in this ancient Israelite society, one of the ways she could get uh, food is by going to these grain fields and following behind these people who are gathering grain so that if things are left behind, she can gather them up, gather them up. So that's what she's doing, right? So let's read what happens in verse three. So Ruth left and entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. She happened to be in the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. I love that the narrator says she happened to be in the portion of the field that belonged to Boaz. Because in the family of God, nothing is just happenstance, right? Nothing is just a coincidence. It wasn't a coincidence that Betty Betty and her mom prayed, and then 24 hours, less than 24 hours later, they got a job offer. And it wasn't a coincidence that Ruth went out to harvest some grain, and it just so happened 
that she was harvesting grain in this upstanding relative's field. And so Boaz shows up. Uh, we keep going in the story. He asks about this new woman who's gathering grain, and uh, his employees tell him about who she is. They say she's been working hard. She's barely rested at all. And uh, Boaz uh, approaches Ruth, and they have this conversation. And it's interesting. We have this conversation here between two people who are at opposite ends of the social totem pole. We have Boaz, the landowner, and Ruth, the foreigner. And so let's read what happens at verses 8 through 9. Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen, my daughter. This is sort of an affectionate term. It's not a literal daughter. Um, Don't go and gather grain in another field and don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they are harvesting and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you're thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. So Boaz does a bunch of things for Ruth. Okay, so number one, she, he encourages her not to gather grain elsewhere and to, to gather grain with his female employees. Now, this is interesting because typically the scavengers don't gather with the female employees. Usually what happens is the employees, they go first and they get the grain and the scavengers, the poor folk, they, they come behind them and they pick up what's left. But he actually encourages her, you know, you know my employees, they're going to be gathering. Just go alongside right with them. All right? And then secondly, he orders his male servants not to touch her. During these days, uh, it was not uncommon, unfortunately, for uh, people to prey on young, unmarried, poor women. And so he makes, it, makes sure that the work environment is safe for her. And then thirdly, he even asks his male employees to fill up water jars for her. Um, so that she doesn't need to take a break in the middle of the day and then go to the well and gather water. She can just, you know, get the water jars. And so the question I think you might ask is, why is he doing all of this to this person that he just met? You know, sometimes people, they, they read these, these, the story with more of a romantic kind of lens and they think, oh, Boaz is just falling in love with this woman. It's love at first sight. And so he just wants to care for this woman. I d- when you read the text in the original context, it doesn't seem like that's happening. And, and, and back, actually, back in this day, love at first sight wasn't really even a thing. Um, it, it's, it's more the exception to the rule. Arranged marriage was typically what happened. And usually when you arrange a marriage, uh, you are supposed to be arranged to marry someone who was at your same social status, your socioeconomic status. So that's what was common back in those days. And so Boaz, he's not the kind of guy to go looking to marry a poor foreigner who is already... A, a widow who already was once married. And if you read chapter one, it seems like there's a history of barrenness. She was married for 10 years and had no kids. And so that's not the kind of person that Boaz would typically fall in love with. And so why is Boaz doing all these things for Ruth then? Well, he explains, actually, she wonders this too. Actually, let's read that first. In verse 10, she fell face down, bowed to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor with you so that you notice me, although I am a foreigner? That's what she says. And then we see Boaz's intentions in verses 11 and 12. Boaz answered her, Everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and mother in your native land and how you came to a people you didn't previously know. May the Lord reward you for what you have done and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. And so Boaz knows about this woman. There's been rumors going around about this woman and how 
Ruth was so committed to caring for her mother-in-law that she left everything that was familiar, her father, her mother, her native land, and came to Israel. And this so impressed Boaz that he wanted to help her out. And he wanted to be, in a sense, an answer to this own blessing that he gives her. His blessing was, may the Lord reward you for what you have done, that you receive the full reward from the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. And he wants to be a part of blessing her as well. And, uh, and I think this is amazing because Boaz doesn't just verbally bless her, but he materially blesses her too. Uh, it, it, and I think for Boaz, it's, it wasn't enough to just verbally encourage Ruth. He also needed to act in accordance with his statements of praise. And I'm reminded of James uh, in James chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. It goes, if a brother or sister without, is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? Right? And if Boaz just said to Ruth, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but he didn't do anything, what good would that be? But Boaz, he acted in accordance with his blessing. Right? He went the extra mile for Ruth, and he didn't just, what's amazing is, he didn't just meet the bare minimum requirements of the Mosaic Law. You know, the Mosaic Law did encourage people to care for those who are poor, right? Make sure, you know, when you're gathering your, your, your grain, don't gather it all, leave some for the poor. He did that and more, right? He invited uh, her to gather grain with his employees. He elevated her to this new status. He protects her from harm. He gives her water. He did, he met the bare requirements and he did more than that. And I think this is, I mean, this is just a very, I don't know how we can talk about this text and not talk about how we need to be caring for the foreigners in our midst. I don't think this is a, a hermeneutical jump to get there. I think Boaz's example is an example for us as well. And I don't think, you know, you might read the story and just think, oh, Ruth's status as a foreigner, that was just a circumstantial thing. You know, it's kind of like the author was writing the story and like, how can I make the story a more, little more interesting? You know what? I'll make her a foreigner and that'll be kind of interesting. I don't think that's, I don't think that's it. I think that throughout the book, Throughout the book, her foreigner identity is a central part of the story. You know, repeatedly throughout this book, R- Ruth's primary uh, description is that she is a Moabite. That's, you know, throughout the book, she, several times it's mentioned she is a Moabite. It's central to her identity, and her status as a foreigner looking for work is on full display in this story. That's why she is caught off guard. What, the reason why she's caught off guard is she's like, why are you noticing me even though I am a foreigner? Uh, Because she realizes, as a foreigner, she has a socially inferior status. And, um, you know, sometimes when we talk about immigration or refugees and all those things, it it can get kind of heated and get kind of political. And, um, you know, sometimes people say things like, you know, if we let immigrants into our country, they're going to take jobs from well-deserving citizens. And it's interesting because that's exactly what happens in this story. Ruth comes and she essentially gets a free ride. She is elevated to the status of, you know, all these other employees, except that these employees are gathering grain for Boaz where she's gathering grain for herself. That seems kind of unfair, right? Sometimes when we think about immigration, we might say, you know, immigrants, they're just a drain on our resources. And that is sort of happening in this story too. You know, Ruth is showing up and she's taking their food. She's taking their water, right? You know, sometimes... We even say, you know, immigrants, they just want to 
come to this country and uh, they want to uh, marry our people, so they become citizens through marriage. And in this story, that sort of happens as well. You know, Ruth, she comes in, she marries Boaz, and she gets dra- grafted into the Israelite family. And, and it's just, um, I, think, I think you just have to ask a lot of questions. When you say things like that about immigrants, you have to wonder, does God care about those concerns? Maybe he does, but maybe he also cares about the immigrants, Maybe he cares about the immigrant enough so that those concerns, maybe they are valid in some ways and form, but they're not as important to him as the immigrant is. And God cares for the impoverished, disenfranchised immigrant. Um, The usage in this story, the usage of the community's resources for the well-being of the foreigner is painted as a positive thing. And Boaz's response to her, may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge, implies that it is proper and right for foreigners to go to God for refuge. Foreigners are to go to God for refuge. That is the expectation of, of, of people who claim that this is their God, is that they want to be a source of refuge for foreigners. And at the end of this book, you know, I mentioned this before, but Boaz and Ruth marry, and there's a lot of social taboo, of course, during this time in, uh, uh, in, in regards to interracial marriage. But that happens. It's even more scandalous than uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. But that's, it happens, okay? And they have kids, and it's revealed that she becomes later the great-grandmother of King David. And so this is a sign that she has now, by the end of the book, been fully integrated into God's family and to the people of Israel. And I think the message of the book of Ruth, one of the core messages, is that if you are a foreigner, if you are an outsider, and you go to God for refuge, he will welcome you into the family. And the practical implications are clear. I think the political stuff is a little more gray. Okay, I think it's totally okay if you are a Christian to disagree from a political standpoint on you know the number of refugees we left, let into our country and, you know, immigration laws. I think it's totally appropriate to disagree on the political level how things work, but I think as a Christian, I think we need to be on the same page, which is that we need to care for foreigners. Are we providing refuge for the foreigners among us? Are we, and I'm not talking about a country, the United States is a little bit different from ancient Israel, but I think, are we, the people of God, concerned about the people who don't look like us? Do we, like Boaz, go out of our way to go above and beyond the rule of law to serve those who are marginalized and disadvantaged among us. I think that's a very practical implication. You know, it can be so easy to go about our lives without even thinking about these groups of people. Um, You know, recently, um, I had two separate conversations with two people, uh, two friends of mine, and they're undocumented. Both of these people are undocumented. And... um, I just want to say it's totally different when you talk to someone face to face. It's not then you're not you're you're not talking about issues anymore. You're not using talking points anymore. You're not just talking about theory. You you have a face. You have a person. And um, and when you get the chance to talk to some of these folks and learn about some of these folks, and you understand what it's going through, it's something else. It's one thing to just talk about what should happen to certain people who do certain things, but it's another thing when you're talking to someone face-to-face and you have a relationship. And um, I think that's, what this is, that's what's going on in this book. It's one thing for Deuteronomy to say something like, 
you know, when there are foreigners among you, make sure you're, you, you care for them. It's another thing when you have a story of Ruth, a story of a foreigner going through suffering and loss and famine and trying to look for a job, and you depict this guy, Boaz, meeting her needs. So let's keep going. Boaz gives Ruth a meal. He gives her roasted grain so that when he comes back to Naomi, they don't have to, you know, roast the grain that they've gathered and they can just eat, right? They don't have to wait for a meal. And then he tells her she doesn't just have to pick up loose grain on the ground. He actually tells his employees to bundle up grain for her and she can just grab bundled up grain. And she ends up with 26 quarts of barley, which is a ridiculous amount for a day's uh, work, even a regular employee typically doesn't get this much to to bring home. And so in verse 19, her mother-in-law says to her, where did you gather barley today and where did you work? May the Lord bless the man who noticed you because Naomi recognizes there is no way Ruth got all this barley by herself. She must have had help. And so uh, it's kind of like, um, you know, a kid um, who who fails every test, and then he takes a final, and then all of a sudden he gets straight A's, and the teacher's like, you couldn't have done this by yourself. You must have had help, okay? And so that's what's going on with Ruth. She couldn't have gathered all this by herself. She must have had help. And so Ruth tells her it was Boaz, and Naomi says in verse 20, that Naomi, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may the Lord bless him because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. Naomi continued, this man is a close relative. He's one of our family redeemers. Now, there's some cultural context we want to unpack. Uh, first off, what does it mean that Boaz hasn't abandoned his kindness to the living and the dead? What does that mean? And then what is this whole deal with this family redeemer? So let's talk about that. So Pastor Dan, he mentioned this last week, but uh, during this time, the, the um, continuation of the family lineage was a big deal. Um, you know, as uh, a man... Uh, during this time, one of the most important duties for you is to have a son. And through your son, you would pass on your inheritance. That's just what people did back then, all right? And if you could not produce any male offspring uh, what, uh, and you died and uh, you're, you have a, a wife who's still alive, what the law commanded was that your brother was supposed to have sexual relationships, uh, relations with this woman and produce offspring on your behalf, even though you were dead. And that person, those children will grow up, uh, and biologically, they would be your kids, but functionally, they would be your dead brother's kids. And so they would receive the inheritance of your dead brother. So that's what was going on in those days. Um, and in fact, in Deuteronomy 25, this is kind of funny, if you want to read it on your own time. It says, if a guy refuses to have children on his dead brother's behalf, the widow is supposed to take her sandal off her feet and slap his face. That's literally what it says, so look it up. Anyways, another rule had to do with land. Um, if a person fell on hard times and had to sell his land, like Elimelech probably had to do, if there's a famine, he had to sell his land, move to Moab. If a man fell on hard times, had to sell his land for quick cash, usually it happened, usually when it happens, he would sell at a, a steep discount, then it was up to that person's family to try to pitch in and buy the land back. And his, families would be con- his family members would be considered family redeemers. That's what it means to be a family redeemer. Is your family member is 
at a loss, is not doing well. Sometimes another thing that people would do was they would sell themselves into slavery because that was their only option. They would sell themselves into slavery. And if you were a family member, then you were, it was on you. You'd be called a family redeemer. You would redeem the land or you would redeem the person. You'd rescue your family member from the poverty. So that was what was socially expected at that time. So Naomi recognizes that Boaz is a family redeemer. Okay. And this would later come up in Ruth 4. So stay tuned for Ruth 4. But what's going on here is Boaz recognizes he is a dead, uh, that, that he is a relative to this dead guy, Elimelech. And now Elimelech has this widow and a daughter-in-law who are back in Bethlehem and they need help. And Boaz is recognizing that as a relative, it is partially his responsibility as a family redeemer to care for this family. And by caring for uh, and providing for Naomi and Ruth in the hopes that one day Naomi or Ruth, probably Ruth because Naomi's too old, in the hopes that Naomi or Ruth would have children one day, then those sons would be legally, uh, they would legally become the heirs of Elimelech. And they could then carry on the family lineage. Because that's what's going on. But the thing is, this is a huge sacrifice. This is a huge sacrifice on Boaz's part because to put it frankly, I mean, things would be much easier if Naomi and Ruth didn't show up. If Naomi and Ruth didn't show up, then Elimelech would have no chance of having offspring. And then so there would be no responsibility on on his family's behalf to buy land or to to care for these people. There would be no responsibility because Elimelech, he's, yeah, there's no chance of a lineage. But because Naomi and Ruth showed up and there is this chance that potentially one of them could bear kids and continue Elimelech's lineage, then now there's this responsibility. And so potentially Boaz could have you know, been, man, why are these guys back again? They're just going to be a drain on my resources. But he doesn't. He says, this is my duty as a family member, as a family redeemer. I'm going to take initiative and care for them. Um, so ultimately, if Boaz or anybody else who is in this extended family, they want to continue Elimelech's lineage, it requires potentially buying back land that Elimelech probably sold at a discount, and maybe marrying Ruth. And that's not a small order. That's a very tall order, right? But Boaz recognizes this is what he needs to do, so he slowly starts to take steps in this direction. And he's extending kindness. That's, this is what Naomi is talking about. He's extending kindness not only to Naomi and Ruth, who are alive, but to Elimelech, who is dead, in the hopes of continuing his lineage. And Naomi recognizes that for the first time in maybe a long time, there is this glimmer of hope. And she's not just thinking about the survival of herself and Ruth. There's this glimmer of hope that maybe Elimelech's lineage can continue. Maybe there can be new children who will carry on the family line after they die. Which is why in Ruth chapter 3, Naomi's trying to hook them up. Okay, So when, we're, um, when there's stories like this in the Bible... Um, it seems kind of like, you know, far off and it's kind of distant. We don't have the same cultural values and, and it's not very clear what we're supposed to do. Sometimes, you know, we don't really know what to do with this. Or we, we go, oh, that's a nice story, I guess. Um, and in the New Testament, you know, it's very clear how we respond to different verses sometimes. You know, Jesus says, do this. And Paul says, do this. And that's what we do. But in the Old Testament, a lot of times with these stories, it's just kind of like, oh, wow, that's, that's pretty nice. But what do, I, what do I do about that? Well, uh, and I think that, you know, it's, it's not like the author says, he wraps up the story and he goes, and the moral of the story is blah, 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 blah. So do this. He, it, that doesn't happen, right? So what do we do with these sort of stories? 
Well, I think uh, one thing we can do is put ourselves in the shoes of the people of the story and see what we can learn from these characters. And um, uh, the stories like this, they give us this opportunity to imagine ourselves as these characters so that we can seek to apply the principles that these characters are living out. And so in, these, in this chapter, there are two main characters that we can learn a lot from. One is Boaz, the landowner, and two is Ruth, the foreigner. Um, and I think we, even though we might not be landowners and foreigners in the same ways, we can learn a lot from their example. And I want to unpack maybe a potentially charged word, which is this word of privilege, okay? Because in this story, Boaz represents the stereotypically privileged person in society, and Ruth represents the stereotypically underprivileged person in society. And depending on your background, maybe there's all sorts of red flags going on in your mind because privilege is a charged word. So let's just talk about privilege just to make sure we're on the same page, okay? So everybody, I want to make this clear, everybody is privileged in some ways and everybody is underprivileged in other ways, okay? That's, that's, so there's, it's intersectional. We are all privileged in some ways and underprivileged in other ways. So, for example, and this is speaking in broad strokes, if you are born in a wealthy family, you are more privileged than someone who was not born in a wealthy family, okay? Because it means you never had to stress out about putting food on the table. If you were raised in a safe neighborhood, it means you had more privilege than someone who was not raised in a safe neighborhood because you had a less likelihood of you know, adverse childhood experiences and uh, you never had to be concerned about crime. If you are a male then you are more privileged than someone who is female because you, know, you don't have to think about sexual assault very often and you, you can talk loudly in work settings and people don't think you're aggressive, okay? And uh, if you are white, then you have some privilege because it means you don't have to worry as much when you get pulled over or you don't have this inferiority complex when you're watching TV shows and you're going, how come no one looks like me? So there's, so there's a, a variety of ways to have privilege, and there's a variety of ways to be underprivileged, okay? Now, another thing to recognize is uh, privilege is helpful because it helps us to understand people. It helps us to sort of keep track of big picture trends and patterns and to sort of understand why people tend to do certain things and uh, that sort of thing. However, and this is very important, talking about privilege doesn't negate personal responsibility. And I think this is where sometimes People who talk about privilege all the time, they get it wrong. Talking about privilege doesn't negate personal responsibility. For example, uh, or in other words, if someone who is underprivileged commits a crime, that person is still in the wrong for committing a crime. You can explain maybe the reasons, the causes, the circumstances, the environments that might make it a little bit easier for that person to commit a crime. You can talk about, oh, maybe that person is poor and desperate because of this and this and this. But the fact of the matter is that person did something wrong. Okay, that person does need to take personal responsibility for what happened. Or here's just another example. Just because you grew up in an abusive household doesn't mean you get an excuse to be abusive when you have your own household. All right, so just because you are underprivileged in some way doesn't mean you don't have personal responsibility anymore. All right? So we need to hold those two things, those two things in tension. On the one hand, there is social privilege. That is a dynamic. That is a reality. That is some, we need to understand those things. Okay? On the other hand, there's individual responsibility. And we need to understand that as well. Okay? It's a tricky balance to get right. But those, are, those two things are important. Uh, and I'm going to explain why. Okay? In this story, 
Boaz is the stereotypical privileged character. He's male. He's wealthy. He's a man of good reputation. He's an Israelite. He's a landowner. He has a well-respected lineage. Ruth is a stereotypical underprivileged person. She's female. She's poor. She's a widow. She's a Moabite. And here we see the perfect example of someone employing his privilege to care for the underprivileged. And we see the perfect example of someone who was underprivileged taking personal responsibility. We see both. Let's talk about both one at a time. Okay, so let's talk about Boaz. So Boaz had this law to meet. When you're harvesting your grain, care for the, you know, the widows, the foreigners among you. He doesn't just meet that. Right? As we mentioned, he goes above and beyond. He sacrificially addresses her needs, gives her cooked food, gives her water, elevates her status so she can work among his employees. And that's a challenge to those of us who are in positions of privilege. It's not enough to just meet the minimum requirements of the law. When you care for the poor, it's not enough to say, I pay my taxes, and a small portion of those taxes goes towards welfare and Medicaid and Medicare, and so I'm helping the poor. That's not enough. I think we need to go above and beyond the minimum requirements of the law. As Christians, we need to ask, how can I employ my privilege, if I have privilege, to serve those who are underprivileged? And in the kingdom of God, all gifts are to be shared. God never gives gifts to be hoarded. Sometimes when people talk about privilege, um, they make privilege like a bad thing. Like, you know, if you're privileged and you're you're, you're guilty and you're horrible because you're a person of privilege and you're, you know, look at what your people have done because that's, I don't think that's a healthy way. I think, you know, take everything with a grain of salt, but I don't think that's a really healthy way to understand privilege. I think having privilege is one of the ways you can think about privilege is God has given you gifts and blessings and opportunities to share with people who aren't privileged. Okay. So I think a biblical way to think about it is the more privilege you have, potentially the more opportunities you have to be a source of blessing to others. So, and I think that's the principle behind um, Genesis 12. When God blesses Abraham, he says, I want to bless you so that you would be a blessing, right? So don't see your privilege as necessarily a bad thing. Don't be wallowing in your guilt. That's not what you're supposed to be doing as a person of privilege. See it as a good thing. See it as, see it as a gift that God has given you to employ for the sake of the underprivileged. Okay? So that's Boaz. If you're in a position of privilege, think about that. Let's talk about Ruth. One thing, about, one thing I love about Ruth is that she took initiative. Like if you look at this story, it was her idea to go gather grain. She said to Naomi, hey, I'm going to go gather grain. And it was her idea in this conversation, you know, we didn't read the verse in detail, but she took the initiative to ask Boaz's employees if she could fall behind and gather grain behind them. And, it's, and also, it was described, she worked diligently. It says she only rested for a little bit. She's been working all day. And so coming under the, the wings of the Lord for refuge doesn't just mean you sit around, wait around, and do nothing and twiddle your thumbs. Some people, when they're not doing well, they blame the system, right? And I think sometimes the system shares some of the responsibility. Okay, you, you blame the corporations, you blame the government, you blame the media, you blame whoever, and so on. Uh, but sometimes it's dangerous when you start putting all the responsibility on everybody else and none on yourself. And I want to clarify, you know, many of these institutions need to bear some of the responsibility for your predicament. I think that's true. And I think part of advocating for justice is recognizing those things and trying to uh, create societal uh, reform. However, 
you as an individual also need to take responsibility. And that's exactly what Ruth does. Even though she is a victim of a patriarchal society, even though she was a foreigner in a land that looks down on foreigners, she took initiative and she took action in order to better herself and better Naomi. What Boaz and Ruth have in common is that both people took action. Both people trusted in God, but also took action as well. It's clear in the story that God was working behind the scenes, but it's also clear in the story that Ruth and Boaz were also working in their scenes. So it's not enough to say, you know what, I'm, not, I'm in sort of a situation, but I'm just going to wait on God. He's going to work behind the scenes, and he's going to work things out. We also need to take initiative and work things out as well. So don't let your waiting on God be an excuse for laziness. I encourage you to ask yourself, in what way do I need to take action? Maybe you identify more so with Boaz, with a position of privilege. Maybe you've been, for example, walking by the same homeless dude for years, and you're going, you know what? Maybe I need to take action. I need to care. Use my privilege to care for the underprivileged. Um, or maybe... Uh, you are identifying more like Ruth. You're in a pretty sticky situation. It's horrible. And you spend a lot of time blaming the system, blaming the government, blaming the media, blaming your dad, blaming anybody but yourself. And maybe you just need to say, you know what? Maybe some of these folks have to share the blame a little bit, but I need to share the blame and I need to step up. I need to take responsibility. I need to take action as well. Maybe some of you are not just trying to be lazy, but you're just, you know, the status quo is the status quo, and that's what you've been doing for a long time, and you've just given up hope that things can change. Well, the Christian gospel implies that change is not only possible, but inevitable. And I want to make this very clear. The reason why we take action is because God took action in our lives. If God never made a move in our lives, if God was never working behind the scenes, then all of our actions would be futile. We would be correct in saying, what is the point? But because God took action, because God is working behind the scenes, and because God creates scenarios where Ruth may happen to be in the field of Boaz, God makes all those things happen, then it is worthwhile for us to take action, to take initiative, to step out in faith, because God will provide. And the primary way in which God took action is he sent Jesus to live with us and to die for us and to rise again. You see, in a sense, all of us are spiritually underprivileged because we were all born in sin. We were all like Ruth. Just like Ruth, we are too familiar with spiritual poverty. And Jesus is like Boaz. The spiritual Boaz, he was, a position, he was in a position of privilege, living with the Father in heaven, and he left it all, came down to our planet, dwelt among us so that he could lift us up. He elevated our status so that we could be with God, so that we could go to God for refuge, so that no matter who you are, spiritually disenfranchised, whatever you've done, if you are a foreigner to God, you can come to him and he'll welcome you with open arms. He'll provide for you. He'll quench your thirst. He'll quench your hunger. He'll give you a mission. He'll give you a family. So I just encourage you, to, regardless of who you are, whether or not you identify as a Christian, turn to God. Go to him under his wings of refuge. 
be transformed by him. And then as a result, live as if you are transformed. Please stand with me as we pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, the original Boaz, this upstanding dude who chose to look at us, trying our best to gather grain off the ground to try to make ends meet. And he didn't just give us a few things here and there, he gave us his life so that we could be lifted up we can be elevated, we could be installed as kingdom citizens, as sons and daughters of the living God, as representatives of God, as image bearers, as transformed new creations, as ambassadors for Christ. We have this elevated status because of what Jesus did and how he, in a position of privilege, looked at us, stuck in our sin and mire, and lifted us up. And we pray that that would transform our mentality so that we would no longer see ourselves as broken slaves trapped in the system, but that we would see ourselves as now we are in a position to extend the same grace, the same forgiveness, the same empowerment to others around us too. For those of us who are in positions of privilege and power and influence, May you give us the eyes to see those who are in need. May you give us the heart of compassion to extend to those who are in need. May you give us the steps to take initiative, to take action. And for those of us who maybe are not in positions of privilege, who are disenfranchised or who are suffering, who are poor, who are looking for some glimmer of hope somewhere, may we turn to you. May we turn to you, the God of refuge, but may we not just idly wait around. May you give us the hearts of confidence to take steps of faith, to also take action, to know that as we take our steps, you are walking alongside us and you will bring us home. You will provide. Thank you for who you are. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.